The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, a warm welcome to Scorebox this Wednesday morning with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Decisions over dinner. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson hopes an evening meeting with the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen will break the Brexit deadlock as the UK ditches the law-breaking aspects of the internal markets bill. We have to ensure that those red lines, those principles of independence and sovereignty are respected by the EU side. I hope that the EU will recognise that. A deal is in all of our interests, but it can't be a deal at any price. U.S. stocks hit new record highs while Treasury yields sink to fresh lows. This as J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says he wouldn't touch Treasuries right now at these yields with a 10-foot barge pole. Asian equities trade in the green. This as Chinese producer prices fall less than forecast, while annual consumer prices drop for the first time since 2009. Shares in SoftBank jump on a report suggesting CEO Masayoshi-san is buying back shares in a bid to take the Japanese investment giant private. And a cruise to nowhere returns after a passenger on board a Royal Caribbean ship in Singapore tests positive for COVID. Well, here we go again. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson heading to Brussels later today. That's after he uh, attends Prime Minister's question time. He is set to meet with the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, for critical Brexit talks over dinner. Both sides remain divided over, yes, a number of key issues, including... You fill the gaps in, yeah? OK, I'll do it for you, just in case. Fishing rights, so-called level playing field, and the governance of the agreement. There was good news, though, yesterday. Genuinely, there really was good news. Meanwhile, Downing Street says it is dropping controversial parts from a bill in Parliament that would have breached the Brexit divorce agreement, which just happens to be an international treaty. Uh, the UK Cabinet Office uh, Minister is Michael Gove, and he said he was delighted by the development. We needed to make sure that if we didn't secure agreement with the European Commission on these important questions, that we reserved the right as a fail-safe mechanism to safeguard Northern Ireland's position within the United Kingdom. That was always our aim, to safeguard the territorial integrity of our country, to make sure that we protected the fact that Northern Ireland was in the UK's customs territory. Working together, we've worked through the detail in a way which ensures that we no longer need to proceed with these clauses because we can be confident that Northern Ireland's position within the United Kingdom is secure, even as Northern Ireland's access to Ireland and the single market is also secure. So we're going to find out, of course, uh, how much real power Ursula von der Leyen has if they can make some form of breakthrough. We know that Boris Johnson has a limited amount of power because of the different parts of his party. So we had yesterday this extraordinary situation where the negotiators finished and they were told to go and make some lists for their bosses of where the problems were. So I uh, and CNBC have managed to get hold of those lists as well. Uh, and here they are. 
Here are the absolute key lists. This is straight off the press, okay? And as you can see, it's Poisson, La Règle d'Application, and Des Règles du Jeu Équitable as well. So, Sylvia as well, those are the three key issues. We managed to get hold of them for CNBC, which is, uh, which is quite stunning there. Bit of a coup for us there. But in terms of the movement you're expecting tonight, well, tell us about it. Well, all eyes are indeed on that meeting between the Prime Minister and uh, Ursula von der Leyen. They will be meeting in the building you see behind me, the main building of the European Commission. And uh, the European Commission chief spokesperson actually hinted yesterday that perhaps there will be further negotiations after this dinner meeting. So perhaps for those out there that are expecting this meeting tonight to be either a breakdown or a breakthrough of these trade negotiations, that perhaps might not be the case. And indeed, we could see further talks in the coming days. But there's a big question mark as to what will be the come of this meeting, but will certainly be important for the overall process uh, that it is negotiating a trade agreement between the UK and the EU. But you mentioned there the agreement that was achieved when it came to the internal markets bill. That is an important development in this overall process because essentially the UK government is now saying that he's willing to drop those controversial clauses in that legislation and that it will also avoid similar provisions in the upcoming taxation bill. And that is important for the EU because without that commitment, any trade deal would be also not signed by the EU, as different officials have said before. And in this context, let's take a look at some of the remarks from Mario Sefcovic, the Vice President of the European Commission, after signing that, uh, uh, that agreement in principle with the UK government. We also reached an agreement in principle with respect uh, um, to the uh, decisions the Joint Committee has to take before the 1st of January 2021. In particular, this concerned the practical arrangements uh, regarding the EU presence uh, in the Northern Ireland when UK authorities implement checks and controls under the protocol determining the uh, criteria of goods to be considered not at risk of entering the EU when moving from the Great Britain to the Northern Ireland, the exemption of agricultural and fish subsidies from the state aid rules. I hope uh, that uh, this would create a, a positive uh, uh, momentum also for the discussions on the free trade agreement. As, as you know, we are still very far apart and we are not hiding this from, uh, from uh, anyone. So this assembly block over the internal market bill is resolved, but of course, what happens with the trade negotiations is still very much in the open. Yesterday, Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, debriefed the European Affairs Ministers here in Brussels, and according to an EU source, in that meeting, he said that the EU will keep fighting to get an agreement with the UK, but of course, time is running out. So let's see what will happen tonight at this dinner meeting. It will certainly be an important one for the overall process. But at this stage, Steve, we don't know if there will be further negotiations after tonight and indeed how this overall process will actually end, either with a deal or perhaps with a no deal.
Excellent work, Sylvia. As well. And I managed to get hold of a third document, you'll be pleased to know. Not only did I get the negotiating sticking points as well, but I also managed to get hold of the menu as well. And I don't know if our viewers can see this. This is a copy of the menu. Uh, Son Fumé, which is European, of course. Uh, Moru Francais, uh, it is French cod. Uh, and the cheese afterwards, camembert, as Jeff likes it, with the bits in. Brie and Epoise. And apparently no Stilton or cheddar was available for the meal. So let us move on and get to back on track now with Chris Southworth, who is the uh, Secretary General, the International Chamber of Commerce, ICC UK. Chris, we've had a, a, a strenuous and vigorous debate around the desk for a few months now about how prepared many businesses can be, the cost of that preparation as well, because yes, businesses can make a certain degree of preparation, but the cost involved, especially for SMEs, is absolutely enormous, not knowing what's going to happen in just a few days' time. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Well, I think, you know, the, the context in which we're having this conversation now has fundamentally changed to what it was, um, you know, three or four years ago. <clears throat> the, the biggest priority for companies right now is, is to survive and recover from COVID and all the economic damage that's uh, originated from, from the uh, immediate crisis in front of us. So I think we have to be very mindful. The political leaders need to be mindful of that um, uh, in the discussions. The number one priority is economic growth, jobs, investment. Uh, there's no question at all that, that you know, small companies, SMEs, um, many are still unprepared uh, to, their, to, their, um, uh, to be fair to them. Um, it's been very difficult for, for many companies to fully prepare because they don't know what the border arrangements uh, are exactly in, in some areas. Uh, some of the import tariffs, for instance, uh, won't be published until the new year. So anybody importing those particular products um, won't know what those codes are. You know, some very practical, very technical issues um, for, for companies to deal with. And then there's, there's a whole sea of new red tape and bureaucracy that companies have to deal with, many of whom have never had to deal with it before. So they're not, they're not, they're starting from a zero point, if you like, for any trader who's only traded into Europe and hasn't traded with the rest of the world much of this new documentation is completely new and it needs new skills, training, uh, investment uh, to make sure that that paperwork is, is done uh, at the, uh, accurately on, and on time uh, and in the right place. Uh, and then there's a plethora of different places where all of this paperwork needs Chris. to be registered uh, and loaded up. Chris, I have from my, my, my German pre-war history the word autarky in my mind as well, which is substitution as well. Now, bearing in mind we buy a lot more goods in the United Kingdom uh, than we export as well. Will there not be <coughs> excuse me, a beneficial effect for the UK economy in some form of autarky, in some form of substitution, that actually there will be a boost in domestic production to offset the fact that there will be higher priced goods coming into the country? This is what the Brexiteers tell us. Yeah, some of that's some of that's a bit of a myth. I mean, you know, the UK is a what I call a sort of supply chain economy. We import as much as we export, and we, and we always really have, or at least we have for a very long time. The idea that you know we're just going to suddenly substitute production from Europe all in the UK is not realistic. It's exactly the same conversation with global value chains and reshoring. That's not realistic either. That there may be some substitution, some reshoring, but it's it's completely unrealistic to to think that that's going to be uh, it's going to replace uh, the trading relations with with Europe. It's it's much more sophisticated and complex than that um, in, in the way that companies are operating across the continent and through those relationships with the rest of the world.
Chris, uh, the comparison to Australia keeps on being brought up. And again, if uh, there was a no-deal Brexit that we'd have to potentially revert to some sort of rules like Australia has, which uh, especially no free trade deal and a lot of terms of trade on basic WTO rules. But if you think about that, I mean, Australia's top trading partner is China. So uh, it doesn't have the bulk of its goods coming into the main market in Europe. But for the UK, it's it's a major export market when we talk about Europe. Even if there's a small percentage tweak in some of the tariffs on certain goods, what will that mean across the economy? Well, look, it's in no one's interest for a, a, a no-deal scenario. You know, we need a deal. I think that's absolutely imperative. And we need the political leaders to uh, take a pragmatic approach at this stage in the negotiations. This is not about being dogmatic. Um, you know, the UK has made its point. It's out of Europe. Uh, we've now got to focus wholly on the priorities, which are people's livelihoods. Uh, and, and the economies on both sides, and, and not just with the EU, UK, but global economy too. The last thing anybody wants right now is is more disruption and more uncertainty. Uh, so the deal is absolutely critical. Whatever it is, it, it needs to be done. And the idea of trading on WTO rules is is ridiculous, frankly. Um, no country, serious trading country, trades on WTO rules only. Uh, every major economy has regional agreements and bilateral agreements with their neighbours. Uh, the UK needs to do the same if it wants to remain credible um, in terms of its reputation abroad. Uh, and that's an important point. Um, you know, we've got to be mindful from the UK side that we're, we're launching ourselves out as a, as a fully independent economy uh, as of the 1st of January. Well, we already are that, but, you know, in, in terms of the end of the transition, uh, we've got to be mindful in, in terms of the messaging we're sending to the rest of the world. Uh, and what we need is credibility, uh, responsibility and duty to all the people we're trading with. Uh, and from the business side of things, the business economy on all sides, everybody wants a deal so that companies can trade uh, and get on with the real priorities, which is the economic recovery. Chris, um, it's a reality, though, isn't it, that the EU doesn't have a comprehensive trade agreement with China it doesn't have a comprehensive trade agreement with the United States. These are the world's first and second largest economies. Uh, and on that basis, all of these countries and the EU seem to manage to do business together. Would it be ultimately such a disaster if the UK were left in a similar situation? Absolutely. I mean, you know, yes, there, there, there may not be a, a trade agreement with China or the US. The UK doesn't have an agreement with the US either. Um, but, you know, you can't replace 50% of UK trade trading on preferential terms um, with, you know, no trading, uh, preferential trading terms. Uh, you know, that will come at a significant uh, impact to, to companies uh, in terms of tariffs uh, and extra burdens and red tape, which is completely unnecessary. Uh, and this is important. You know, we've got to get into the detail here. This is, it's, it's, it's not enough to look at this from 50,000 feet. We're talking about people's businesses. We're talking about people's livelihoods. You know, 10% tariffs on cars will have a dramatic impact on the UK auto industry and with it, the European supply chain industry. Uh, tariffs on food, beef and lamb, particularly pork, uh, those kind of areas will have a dramatic impact on farmers in particularly in vulnerable areas in the UK. So we've got to look after uh, uh, the economy. We've got to look after local communities. And we've got to look after people's livelihoods. It would be totally irresponsible to, to leave the EU without a deal and just impose um, tariffs for no reason other than we're, we're just not being pragmatic.
And let's be, let's be straight here. The UK has always been a pragmatic trader in the world. We just need to, you know, keep, keep that in mind and come forward with some practical solutions that work for all sides. It's absolutely doable. Uh, these problems are not insurmountable, but we just need to be sensible so that everybody uh, can, can feel they get something out of the deal. Uh, and we can get on with, with, the, with the real priorities of economic recovery. Uh, and Chris, just so we can be straight with the audience, would you describe yourself as a Remainer or a Brexiteer? Oh, that argument's gone a long time ago. I just think it's not relevant uh, anymore. What we've got to focus on is the real priorities, which is in the, in the short term, recovery from COVID. Uh, the economies have been badly damaged worldwide, but particularly in the UK. Uh, and then the bigger, longer-term challenge is climate change. We've got to find ways to move our economies to more sustainable, green uh, approaches. Uh, and with that, innovation, jobs, uh, and new opportunities with it. Let's let's get on with a bit the big stuff, and you know, let the arguments of the past sit in the past. They are what they are. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what side you're on. Uh, and I don't know anyone who's talking about that, to be honest. No, you know, everyone's focused on the here and now and how we move forward. All right, we'll uh, leave you at that. Chris, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us this morning and thanks for the, uh, the commentary on what should happen next. Chris Southworth, the Secretary General for the International Chamber of Commerce, the ICC. For Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. The UK. Britain says it plans to suspend punitive tariffs on US goods from January 1st. This as the UK looks to distance itself from EU trade policy and forge closer ties with Washington after Brexit. Brussels slapped levies on $4 billion worth of US products last month as part of a 16-year-old legal battle over state subsidies for aircraft makers Boeing and Airbus. The German government has blocked the sale of a radar and satellite business to a Chinese defence company, citing national security concerns. Berlin intervened in the planned acquisition of IMST, a key supplier to the German armed forces. Uh, it was to be bought by a subsidiary of the state-controlled China Aerospace and Industry Group. Germany has tightened rules around non-European acquisitions in recent years in a bid to detract takeovers from Chinese state-backed groups in areas it deems strategically important. Karen. Uh, lots of vaccine news across the markets yesterday and we saw the reaction, a fresh record intraday but also on the finish for the Dow. On the close, uh, fresh peaks eked out for both the S&P 500 and also the Nasdaq. So markets again just eyeing some of that pause and news about the inoculations. When it comes to the United States, uh, the FDA looking at the Pfizer drug as it's been administered yesterday. It was rolled out across the UK and deciding that uh, there were no major safety or efficacy concerns as it released documents. So so uh, that news uh, also further exploration around the AstraZeneca vaccine that was brought uh, and more information brought to the market yesterday. And you can see just how positive it was across the board. When it comes to Dow, it's interesting to say that Johnson & Johnson was one of the major movers. Investors also eyeing whether its vaccine could be the dark horse that emerges in this race for some form of uh, a move or progress beyond what we're seeing with coronavirus. 
at this point. And don't forget, as we circle back to some of the early fears in the week, we saw the markets fixated on the rise in coronavirus cases and the fresh restrictions required to try and tame the pandemic. So the markets are focusing on the pauses, at least in session yesterday. But just worth noting, very slim ranges that we're now seeing on the percentage gains to the upside the dollar. Uh, Here's how we've been traveling this morning. Uh, Risk on is now supporting other currencies and just taking a little bit of shine off the dollar again. We're up about a quarter of a percent on sterling despite uh, a lack of progress again on a Brexit deal. But uh, you're going with it. We've got a bounce there. Similar size percentage increase flat on the dollar yen trade. Dollar also weaker versus the Chinese currency. A quick look at treasuries. Uh, We have been uh, moving in a slightly high range in this uh, 0.9 odd percent, uh, 0.90 odd uh, movement to the upside where 0.98 was sort of the high level in recent days. So we remain trapped very much in that range at this stage. Well, speaking of treasuries, Jamie Dimon is not a fan of low yielding treasuries, telling investors that he, quote, wouldn't touch them with a 10 foot pole. But the JP Morgan CEO added the lender had to purchase US bonds, saying they have no choice. Dimon was more positive on equities, saying while there may be a bubble in small parts of the market, it didn't exist in all of it. So uh, those are the comments from Diamond about the Treasury market. And I think uh, that's what investors are wondering. If they buy that asset now, if uh, they hold on to a little bit of protection in the portfolio, and in, if inflation emerges down the track, well, that was one of these caveats, if inflation emerges, then some of these assets don't look so great down the track. But I think there's a very split picture actually out there as to what happens. Some are saying, well, we've got all this stimulus, but you've had a very big downfall in the economy, so it's not going to be inflationary like we saw last time around. Others think that we might get a spike this time. So it depends on your view on the inflationary outlook. Uh, unfortunately, I think my, my answer is going to be all too predictable. And that is that no one has managed to call the bond market, not even the so-called bond market gurus, Jeffrey Gunlack and um, our friend Bill Gross, uh, late of PIMCO. And they, for years, have talked about the prospect of yields rising and you suffering a significant capital loss on any Treasury positions. And yet it has not happened. And I don't have the benefit of seeing Jamie Dimon's portfolio in the round to know whether he is in publicly accessible investments or whether he has access because of, no doubt, his very large savings and his very large income to Parts of the unlisted market which give him the opportunity to get better returns. But for investors at the moment who are struggling to make anything back from their savings and are also worried about things like the BIS report that suggests that this liquidity crisis, crisis is now going to become a solvency crisis, they are struggling to get anything above inflation at this stage. And one area where you can find that with some security is out towards the long end of the US Treasury market. So I know there are some people in the markets who are saying, look, yes, take your chances if you like with growth, but also anchor your portfolio with some security, which may be gold if you like gold, but it's non-yielding. Maybe buy some long-end or long-dated treasuries then, which at least will give you an above inflation return at this point. But of course, Steve, the key issue, and I think it's almost like religion at this point, you either believe or you don't. It's the one around inflation. And interesting, as we hear a lot of market mavens talking about inflation's coming back 70s style, the Chinese print a CPI number that shows a decline. The first decline, I think, on that series in 10 years, something like that. Maybe not that far back, but at least a decline. What do you think? 
I think there are two points here. On one, I think the article is excellent, actually. You should look at it on cnbc.com viewers as well, because it's not just talking about Jamie Dimon's ear-catching or eye-catching uh, 10-foot barge pole comment. It's making the point that, yes, JP Morgan buys trillion or billions of dollars worth of treasuries because, of course, it is cheap liquidity and then they can go forth and lend. So there is another side of this coin for JP Morgan and the other big banks out there as well, is that, A, yes, as an ultimate investment, they wouldn't have them quote with a barge pole uh, because it's yielding about 0.9 of a percent as we speak for the 10 year but as a facility to go forth and lend with your net interest margin and hopefully expanding net interest margin then it is a great uh, liquidity tool for the banks globally as well so that's why we have these originally we mustn't forget that but your point on inflation is very well made my friend and we don't have to go uh, back to the great periods of inflation and deflation such as we've seen in the 20s or certain parts uh, of, of the early 70s as well we don't have to go there to see that an average inflation rate in the United States over the last 106 years, and I took that period because it's 1914 to 2020. Well, what do our viewers think it is? Bearing in mind, I just told you that the Treasury rate on the 10-year is at 0.9%. I'll give them a second. Is it 1%? 2% maybe? No, 25 3.24%. And that would have ironed out some of those periods of huge deflation and inflation as well. So if you are buying a 10-year piece of paper, one you are um, buying something which you think will not default as well. Don't forget that. You think this is cast iron. Well, guess what? Sovereign defaults, as we found out from the likes of Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff, they happen, and they happen a lot more than you think they do as well. <clears throat> and I'll draw the attention to those lemmings or those goldfish, and if that's not offensive to goldfish at the moment, fish very um, contentious, uh, who keep forgetting that if you buy Argentinian paper, you have got a very high chance of some form of default. So the fact is, even in the United States, 3.24% when you're buying treasuries at 0.9%, you are locking in a historic loss potentially as well there. So one, yes, um, he's right about it as an ultimate investment, but two, inflation and defaults do happen a lot more than people think historically. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.